my name is Brandon. I am uh, one of the pastors here um, at Sojourn Heights. As he said, we're, uh, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Revival, uh, Ordinary Grace in Extraordinary uh, Measure. And so if you weren't here the first couple of weeks, we drew a pretty sharp distinction between uh, what some of us may have experienced, right? My, my church is having a revival from June 20th to, uh, to June 23rd, so that's not, not what we're talking about. What what we're talking about is uh, the need and desire for God to revive and renew our own hearts. Um, uh, and so week one, we talked about prayer. Uh, week two, we talked about um, holiness, having our life conformed to, to Christ and confession of sin. And um, today we keep going, so let's get started. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, I was praying with my family. I have a wife, four kids, seven, six, three, uh, and seven months. Uh, and in the middle of the, the, the prayer, I, I just said, uh, God, thank you that we have the best mommy in the world. And my six-year-old son stopped me and said, Dad, Dad, you don't know that for sure. Uh, and, uh, and so somehow later on that morphed into uh, this really awkward comparison between my wife and my mom. Um, I don't know. Uh, and somewhere in that uh, came out um, that I, uh, I, I said, I, I, love, I love your mommy more than anything in the world. Uh, and then my seven-year-old daughter started to cry. Um, I thought, tears of joy. Uh, and she asked, do you really love mommy more than anything in the world? And so I said, of course I do. And then she started to bawl. And she said, that means you love mommy more than you love me. And... Um, it was a complete dad fail. Um, but here's the lesson learned. Lesson learned uh, that seven, seven's not the age to teach about the order of our loves, right? But there is, there is an order to our love. So if I came to you, my wife's name is Amanda, if I said, um, hey, I, you, you know, you, you need to know this. I, I love you more than I love Amanda. One, you'd have me fired. Uh, two, we would all agree uh, that is a disordered love. And the root of most relational brokenness in our life uh, is the overflow of disordered love. Think about the father who loves his job more than his children or the wife who loves her independence more than her husband or the roommate who loves their stuff more than the person they live with. And the teaching that we're looking at today of Jesus uh, is, by the way, both uh, one of those teachings that's not just hard to understand but hard to accept, like colliding in two, but at its core, at the core of this teaching is Jesus saying this, hey, you, you, you want to be my follower? You want to follow me? Let me tell you what I require. Nothing less than a radical reordering of your loves. Let's look at it. Let's go verse 25. Now, Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, pause, to set the stage, here's where we're at. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. The crowd has been building, um, and, and we uh, presume that in this crowd, there are people who are really committed followers of his, and there's people who are just curious, right? Who's this new religious leader, this new religious teacher? They just kind of joined the crowd, and there's a bit of a mixed crowd, and in some ways, not that uh, dissimilar to us. And at one point he stops and he turns around and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, 
on the surface, on the surface, this seems to be fairly counter to, to the rest of Jesus' message, does it not? I mean, uh, the usage of the word hate here doesn't seem to square with love God, love neighbor. So the key to understanding this is to try to hear it the way they would have heard it then. And before I tell you what they would have heard, let me, let me illustrate, uh, because they heard an expression. Uh, if, I were to, if I were in China, uh, if I'm in China and I said to someone, hey, outside, it's really raining cats and dogs, uh, probably, I'm guessing, they're going to start ducking, right? But if I said to you, hey, it's raining cats and dogs right now, what does that mean? No, no, this is you back to me. It's raining cats and dogs. What does that mean? Yeah, it's raining. Right? It's an expression. We, we all understand that it's an expression. Here's what they would have heard. They would have heard a comparative Semitic expression for loving less. It's why the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew 10 um, says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this expression for comparative love, it comes right out of the Old Testament. So let me show you that. Genesis 29, 30 and 31. So Jacob went to Rachel. Rachel's one of Jacob's two wives in the story. And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so here's what it says. We've got Jacob, he's got two wives. He loves one, Rachel, more than the other, Leah. It's not that Leah wasn't loved. It's that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And with that context, like with that background being drawn into Jesus' words, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that I, I cannot be your Leah. I have to be your Rachel. You, you want to be my disciple? I, I have to be your Rachel. I have to be what you love most. So I Daryl Bach, one of the one of the, just the world's most foremost scholars on the book of um, book of Luke said that, that what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, hey, you want to be my disciple? It means this. It means you pick the relationship and I'm your first love. I'm the first love. So here's a question. Why family? Why, why use family as the illustration, right? Mother, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister. Why, why use family? Well, uh, in the first century, in Jesus' day, your, uh, your family was something that you never disgraced, you never moved away from. You didn't marry someone that your family didn't want you uh, to marry. Family was uh, the source of security and identity and purpose and safety. Um, if I could say it this way to modernize it a bit, you didn't climb the corporate ladder. Your family climbed the corporate ladder. There wasn't, um, I am making my way out of a life of you fill in the blank. My family is making their way out of the life of you fill in the blank. And so this was family, familial relationship, parents, siblings, children, the most important relationships, bar none, not even close in the first century. And Jesus is entering into them and saying, even the most important relationships of your life, the ones that come with the most meaning and security and safety and all the things that you think you need. I am the Rachel of even those relationships. I'm the first love of even those relationships. I cannot be the Leah in any relationship, even the most 
important ones. He would say it, if I can invert it like this, to be the second love for me, Jesus, to be your second love in any area of your life is disordered love. It's disordered love. And we said that disordered love is the root of most brokenness in our life. And so let's, let's talk about a couple of things. Let's talk about dating. Let's talk dating. Uh, if, if what you want most in your life is not Jesus, if he is the second love, if the first love is that someone would just ask me out or someone would just say yes when I do ask them out, let me tell you where this road leads. It leads to anxiety, anger, bitterness. Eventually, it leads to making decisions that you regret. And I am not, to be clear, uh, I, I am not delegitimizing the desire for relationship. The desire for relationship is woven into humanity in Genesis 1 and 2 before there was any brokenness in the world. But if, if your desire for horizontal, desire for horizontal relationship supersedes any kind of vertical love in your life, it will lead to brokenness every single time. Or work. Let's talk work. Uh, if success, achievement, money, esteem, being important when you show up somewhere on Monday morning, if that's the first love in your life, that the, the house you live in and work and income being the means to get there so you can feel something about your life. If that's your first love, if that's your first love, let me tell you where that leads. It leads to the same place. Anger, bitterness, anxiety. It, it leads to brokenness. It leads you to working a thousand hours a week trying to impress somebody that you don't like. It leads you to forsake other relationships that are more important for lesser important ones. Right? It'll lead you to forsake relationship with your roommate, with your church, with your spouse for, for what it's like to interact with your boss because what your boss thinks of you determines the future that really matters to you. This is what happens when Jesus is the second love. It's a disordered love that leads to brokenness. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to point out is that if we were to get underneath most of our anxiety, anger, bitterness, here's what we're gonna find disordered love. And Jesus is entering in and saying, you want to be my follower? It, it, it's a reordering of the loves that are the most important ones in your life. But it keeps going. It keeps going in verse 27. And he says this, that whoever, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So bearing your own cross, this was um, crucifixion, which was really common in this day. And so the crowd would have known what he was talking about. Um, what happened is that you were nailed to a cross and you hung there for several days uh, until, you, uh, until you died. And um, Bach, the, the theologian, looks at this and he says, hey, let me tell you what's being stressed here. Let me tell you what Jesus is emphasizing in this analogy. Um, it's the process of being a disciple. 
Not, not necessarily the entry point, but the process of becoming and living as a disciple, a follower of Jesus's, which is why Tim Keller, uh, pastor, theologian out in New York, looks at it and goes, um, I think Bach is right. And there's two things that we can learn here. One, that being a disciple of Jesus, it, it's, it's both gradual and it's non-negotiable. And he says it like this. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, um, hey, go uh, like pick up your stones to stone yourself uh, or you know, hang yourself to be my disciple? He said, pick up your cross. Because those two, right, to stone or to hang, that death would have been immediate, instantaneous. Uh, but crucifixion is a slow, progressive death, much like being a disciple of Jesus. A slow, progressive death of our old life. A slow, progressive and painful death of the ego. Death of the my life. Death of the horizontal dreams that have consumed us. It's a slow and painful death. It's also non-negotiable. It says if you're not willing to crucify your old life, you cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to kill your old dreams, you cannot be my disciple. And here, here's the, um, if we could just do like a spade a spade moment. There are some of us in this room uh, who, who are here and we're here right now thinking, man, if I could just live right, like if I just get my life in line with Jesus, he'll, he'll give me the dreams of my heart. Uh, and the truth is a lot of those dreams, they might not be um, bad things, right? But uh, it might be like success in my career. Nothing wrong with that. But, but if they're fueled by ego, if these, I want this for my life, is fueled by this internal desire for recognition, then, then what we're doing is we're not coming to Jesus for Jesus. We're coming to Jesus to make him a genie where we rub a bottle, get our three wishes, and go on about our life. And he's saying, I'm not... I'm not here to feed ego. I'm here to kill ego. I'm here to crucify the old life, which I know sounds and often can sound a bit like a burden, right? Pick up my cross, kill all the... Samuel Rutherford said it like this, can't say it better. It says, whoever takes up the cross of Christ with faith and courage shall find it such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings to a bird. The, the like crucifying the old life, picking up your cross. Samuel Rutherford is saying it, 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 it's a burden like a sail is a burden to a ship or wings a burden to a bird. But now he gives two illustrations uh, of what he's been talking about. Verse 28 it says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all will see it and begin to mock him. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Second illustration, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first to liberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so Jesus is giving uh, two illustrations saying, hey, who, who builds a tower and doesn't count the cost, add up, do I have enough money to build this? Or what, what king says, hey, I'm gonna go into war without careful deliberation? 
It's him saying to the crowd, hey, listen, if you're in my crowd, simply because of what you think I'm gonna give to you, you need to count the cost. You need some careful deliberation here. You need to count the cost. Don't, don't be in my crowd simply because of what you think I'm going to give you. Or maybe we bring it to us. It's him saying, hey, if, you, if you're in my crowd because you think I'm just gonna make you a better husband or better wife, don't come to me because you just think I'm gonna make you um, a better friend or better roommate, have a, have a more blessed work life. In fact, don't even come to me just because you want a better life. Come to me for me. Come to me for me. Come, come to me for me. If you don't, you'll never be willing to crucify your old life. Never. Because all, all you're doing is coming to me asking for me to give you the old life. When I came to redefine and reorder all of the loves that marked your old life. All of them. Every one of them. And so he says, reordered loves, it looks like this. I am your first love over every relationship, even the most important ones, and even over your own life. And now he gives one more in verse 33. He says, so, therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, all that he has is a reference to material possessions, the possessions that you have. If I'm not willing to renounce all that I have, I cannot be your disciple. And Daryl Bach looks at this line right here and he says, um, he wrote this in a commentary and I read it and I just thought, man, that is an arrow dagger warning to us, to this little sojourn community living here in this beautiful urban, I don't know if it's beautiful or not, but the urban core of Houston, there ain't no Denver, that's for sure. But listen to what he says. A disciple's material attachments are potentially the most destructive thing for discipleship. Let, let me pause the quote here. Let me, let me interpret him for you. Um, the person who follows Jesus, your attachment to material possessions might be the most destructive thing for your willingness and desire, ability to follow Jesus. He goes on, he says, the will to renounce all possessions and ally oneself totally to Jesus is the essence of discipleship. Bach is saying this. The, the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to have a heart that's more attached to him than any material possession to the degree that you are willing to renounce all that you have because you genuinely believe that Jesus is better. So here's a question. Here's a question. Why? Why this? Why, why would Jesus insert this um, into this list of requirements? Why? I mean, it seems a bit unrealistic, if I'm honest, right? Must be willing to give up all that you have where you cannot be my disciple. Why in the world would Jesus make this uh, unrealistic, seemingly, claim on his people? Here's why. Here's why. It's because it's what he did. It's what Jesus did. It's why Philippians 2 says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus had the single greatest possession that you could possibly have. He had eternal presence with the Father, and he didn't consider it something to just be held on to but he set it aside, emptied himself, came as a servant, divine creator of the world, coming into the world as a servant, and not any servant, but a servant who would die, who would die for you and for me so that we could experience what he left, so that the presence with the Father that he left could be yours and it could be mine, and he experienced separation from the Father to give you presence with the Father. It's why, did you, did you know um, the word possess, possession, is used 129 times in the first five books of the Bible? Because what you possess, what you possess is central to the storyline of the scriptures. Central. Central. That's why the book of Hebrews says that if you're in Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the better possession. The better possession. And you have Christ, what's, what's money? Like what's 10, 20, 100 grand? What's $20 if you have Jesus? What's gold and silver if you have him? It's, it's why the homeless man, listen to me, the homeless man who has Jesus has more than the billionaire who doesn't. Oh, like what that would do to us if we actually believed that. What that would do to us if we actually believed that a homeless man who has Christ has more than the billionaire who doesn't. What that would do to us. And he does because he has the down payment in Christ of the day that Revelation 21 talks about when God will dwell with his people. who will be their God, be our people. And when this is your greatest possession, when, when Jesus is the possession that you value, the attachment that you value above every other attachment, here's what he does. He reorders every single love that you have. He reorders everything, everything. There's not a love that he doesn't reorder. So why Christ as first love even over our family? Because in Christ you have been invited into a better family. You've been invited into the divine family, Father, Son, Spirit, lived out in the context of relationship inside the church. You have a better family, truer family. It's why our, listen, our neighborhood parishes, those dots on the pin back there, on the, on the map back there, those pins on the wall back there, those are not simply places to go to get relational needs met and make some friends. Listen, that, that is wonderful. We, we want deep relationship for every one of you and we want you to have friends inside the church. But that's places where we live out this divine family we've been invited into. It's how we live it out in the day-to-day, every day of our life. Why Christ first love even over our own lives? Because in Christ, when I have Christ, I have a better life. I have his. His. What that would do to us 
Like, what kind of revival of heart would that breathe in us if we really believed that his life was better than mine? And so I'm happy to crucify my old life because my new life is his lived out. What that would do to us. Why? Why Christ's first love even over all of our possessions? Because when I have Christ, I have the single greatest possession that is available in this life. I have him. So I St. Augustine, a bishop from the three and the 400, said, hey, you want, a, you want a happy life? We all want a happy life. You want, you want a happy life? You want to know how to get a happy life? Let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from the right ordering of your loves. You can't create it. You can't, willpower won't make you happy. Right? How many of us in here have experienced somewhat St. Augustine might have experienced? We're just sitting alone and like life is not going as we want it to go and we just want to force ourselves to be happy and it just doesn't happen. He, he knew that experience and he says, listen, you, you don't know where it comes from. It comes from a right ordering of our loves. But here's what we know. Here's what we know. We, we know that being a follower of Jesus, the, the Christian life, it's this fluid battle this fluid fluctuation between disordered, reordered, disordered, reordered, disordered, reordered. And when we come in and say, Lord, reorder our loves, reorder my loves, we we do so knowing that leads to this revived devotion to him. So what do I do, Brandon? What what do I do? Like my I know my loves are out of order. Like I, I know it's inverted. I know the things that are first and I know it's not him. What do I, what do, I do? What do I do? Well, let me, let me start by saying there's no magic formula. But what if we went forward by going backward? What if we went forward by going back to weeks one and week two? What if we went back to prayer and confession? What if we went back and said, you know, reordered love starts with reordered posture on our knees, bowing before the Father in prayer? And what if we said reordered love comes from reordered priorities, that I would prioritize living Christ's life, holiness, confession of sin? What what if that was where it came from? And what if we said we're gonna do this together? Because let me tell you this. What, What Jesus just commanded in Luke 14 is not for the faint of heart. It's not. Like if you're looking for a genie, this is not the passage to come to. It's not for the faint of heart. But being willing to renounce all you have because you believe Jesus is better, being willing to crucify an old life because Jesus is better, let me tell you, that cannot be, will not ever be cultivated alone. Listen, uh, isolation is, always will be the soil of disordered love. The disordered love that's gonna lead to destruction in your life. Every single and so what, what if we said, hey, let's, let's pray for revived devotion that comes from reordered loves and we did it together. We fought for it together. We pursued it together. What if we stopped seeing um, neighborhood parish Sunday is like the checkbox where I show up for an hour on Tuesday, an hour 15 on Sunday, make that two hours on Tuesday, hour 15 on Sunday. What if we stopped checking the box and said, hey, I'm gonna, open my life up and I'm gonna pursue prayer with these people and I'm gonna confess who I am and my, I'm gonna lay bare my brokenness. And listen, I, I know, I know how frightening that is. I, there, there is 
nothing you're being invited to that we don't experience ourselves. And I know that when I'm sitting with the dudes in my neighborhood parish and I'm saying, hey, this is the issues going on in my life. In fact, um, I, I, this coming Wednesday, I'm gonna get together with the men in my parish and um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share something in me, a real issue that I've been wrestling with for a long time that's resurfaced in the last couple of months. And it's this fear that's so silly and so nonsensical that I feel ashamed to even say it. I know the fear of that. I'm not unaware of that. But they're going to pray. And together, together, I'm going to get to see them just, what's the Lord, like, reorder my love little by little through communal prayer, communal confession. I'm going to get to pursue reordered loves going forward by going backward weeks one and two. Because here's the thing. If we don't, like if we don't press in, lean into one another, be willing to open ourselves up to one another, our love of life and the grip that money has on us is far too strong. Far too strong. And there is this radical reordering of our loves that's the soil that this ridiculous kind of devotion that Jesus requires of us in Luke 14 is birthed out of And it can't happen alone. It won't happen alone. It happens when we see the church as the better family. The family that I'm willing to lay myself bare before. Trusting. Trusting that I'm going to get to experience a taste of that unconditional love I have from the Father and these men and women around me. So let's be that people. Let's be that people that pursue reordered loves for the sake of revived devotion And let's do it together. Let's do it together. Let me pray. Father, I I know, I know that this is a, I know this is a difficult text to understand, a difficult text to accept, but it's a teaching that came out of the mouth of our Lord. And so may we, may we be a people May we be a people who really pursue reordered loves for revived devotion together. And you might revive us communally. As a community, community, we might become a place of just beautiful, unexplainable, revived, unhindered devotion to Christ our King to the degree that we'd be willing to give up all that we have because we believe he's better. He's better. May he be the first love in any of our loves. We pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen.